to remind some of us and to introduce uh, those of you who are new or joining us, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth is a letter of correction. He's addressing issues, okay? The issue he's dealing with currently is not actually ever stated in the text, but it has something to do with an off-belief that the church in Corinth has, specifically about the future of all things, about end times, about, um, about a bodily resurrection, okay? So when Paul deals with this, he does it very broadly. As you can see here, if you're looking at your Bible, um, chapter 15 is 58 verses long. It's all focused on addressing this issue, but he takes a multifaceted approach. And so what, it, what he does in the beginning is he reminds him of the foundation, the basis, the beginning of Christianity, what we as Christians call the gospel. And he rehearses it for them as they had learned uh, that Christ died according to the scriptures, was buried and rose again according to the scriptures, and then was seen by many witnesses. He reminds them of these things, and then he says, if this is the case, if Christianity only exists because Jesus is alive, if the firm foundation of everything we believe is based on the resurrection of Jesus, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? How can some of you say that it's not possible for there to be a bodily resurrection? And so what he does next is he goes, let's just follow your idea to its logical conclusion. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And then effectively he picks apart everything that Christians believe. Because it's all rooted there. Because it's all grounded there. He says, he says effectively that faith is meaningless if Jesus isn't alive. He says uh, that the New Testament as a witness to who God is and what God has said is unreliable if Jesus is not alive. He says that the dead who have died in Christ have perished permanently. There's no hope for us uh, in that. And then he finishes by just saying, if Christ is not riven, uh, risen and yet this is where we base our lives, if this is the only center, the only hope for us as Christians, then the whole world should pity us. Okay? As I said earlier, if Christ is not alive, there is no Christianity. Where he goes now is to jump from that reality that Christ truly is risen and what that means for the future. But here's Here's the question that he addresses, and I don't think it's a question that many of us as Christians have ever asked. Why did Jesus rise from the dead? Now, there are answers we're not going to cover in this that would be totally appropriate and accurate. For example, in Paul's preaching in the book of Acts, he points out that God has appointed one man to judge the living and dead and has proven that by raising him from the dead. And so the resurrection is evidence that Jesus has been appointed by God, okay? The resurrection is also evidence that Jesus is really who he proclaimed to be and that we can trust the things that he said. It's a validation of all the things that he said. The resurrection, as I pointed to uh, last week, is somewhat like the receipt for the transaction that happened on the cross. How do we know that it truly was, as Jesus said, finished? How do we know that we can have salvation in Jesus? How do we know that forgiveness is available in the blood of Christ because of the resurrection? Those are all true answers. But the answer that Paul addresses this morning is deeper and it is longer. It is uh, broader. It, it comes down to the significance of the resurrection. Okay. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not an end. 
It's a plot point. It's a turning point. It's a pivot. It's a, it's a complete change from death into life, from old covenant to new, all of these things. But God isn't finished yet. And if you don't see the why of the resurrection, then it's just this one thing that happened one time, this anomaly of history, this incredibly unique thing. But as Paul points forward here, he really answers that question. So let's read our verses this morning together, and then we'll pray and we'll, um, we'll dig in to the text. This is what Paul writes here, starting in verse 20 of chapter 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is uh, accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would um, give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. I pray that you would, by your spirit, give us understanding of this text. And I would pray that if these things are true, if these are the facts, but in fact, Paul begins, if these things are true, I pray that they would become the frame of reference for everything in our life for our daily existence that lives between what Jesus has done and what Jesus will do. I pray that we would be renewed in this knowledge this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The question once again is, why? What is the why behind the resurrection? And he sums it up for us in verse 20 when he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Interestingly enough, this is a calendar reference. When Paul refers to Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits, he's actually pointing to the calendar. Okay? Here's what I mean. You may be aware of the fact that when Jesus was crucified, it was during a holiday weekend. The Jews were in the midst of celebrating Passover. In fact, not only Jesus himself but also his disciples in the later epistles pointed to Jesus and that death as being the fulfillment of this ancient and old holiday that begins in the book of Exodus. But what you may not be aware of is that after Passover, you naturally have a Sabbath, which would have been Saturday uh, in the Jewish reckoning, and then Sunday would have been the festival of firstfruits. It's a harvest festival. It's when you bring in uh, a representative beginning of the harvest that you haven't taken in. So you take the earliest yield of the harvest and you commit it to God in celebration of the fact that he has provided. Okay? And so when he refers to Jesus here as the first fruits, 
there's a calendar significance there. Jesus actually rose from the dead on this day, and for Paul, he sees that word as being important, and here's why. Because as much as Jesus' resurrection was totally unique, it never happened before, and in one sense will never happen again, as much as the Bible constantly proclaims that Jesus is one of a kind, there's also an appropriate sense where there's a similarity in our own destiny where he is only the beginning of what God is doing, where he is the first fruits and we are the fruit that is to come. Uh, as John read this morning out of the book of Revelation, Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Not the only, not the last, the firstborn. The resurrection was the start of something God was doing, not just the culmination of his plan. And so effectively, what Paul does by using the word first fruits here is he says, we and our destiny is bound up in what happened with Jesus. The resurrection is significant for us, not just because it changed us life, but because it gave us life. And he wants us to understand that that's not merely something spiritual. It's not Jesus really rose from the dead, so we have spiritual life. He says here that the destiny we have is actual resurrection. So notice how he continues. He says that he's the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so what he says is that Jesus' resurrection changes something for people and he points to Adam he points to the beginning he goes back to the book of Genesis and specifically he's speaking about death and the resurrection of the dead okay here's the first why why was Jesus raised because death is not right because death is not as God intended the fact that all of us die the fact that death is a part of our experience as human beings is evidence, according to the Bible, that there is something wrong with the universe. And the resurrection wasn't just giving us a gateway into heaven, it was dealing with death itself. That's why he goes on to say that the last enemy Jesus will conquer is death. Later in the passage, he'll put it this way, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hell, technically the word there, it would be better translated Hades. Where is your victory? The abode of the dead, the grave. Basically, what Jesus did in the resurrection broke the finality of death. Broke the conquering of death. Listen. If there is no resurrection... Just recognize the weight and the significance of death. It becomes the sole significant thing because it robs every other thing in your life of significance. Your relationships end in death. Your memory with enough time ends in death. Whatever you've accomplished, if this world is just going to pass away like we all do, death. Death robs life of significance because of its finality, because of its permanence, and because of its consistency. 
If all die, then all who remember you now will die and so will your memory. If all die, then all that you create will not be enjoyed because those who enjoy it currently will die and not enjoy it. Death puts life at risk. And the Bible goes all the way back to the beginning and says that this begins with what happened in Adam. He says, just as death came through one man, just as for in Adam all die. See, we mentioned in our catechism this morning that what sin results in is disintegration and death. In that rebellion, we disconnect ourselves with the God who is life, and the only other option is death, destruction, and decay. This is so much more than an afterlife. This is so much more than some sort of post-physical life, spiritual life. Here he's talking about the bodily resurrection of the dead. Death, as Paul labels it here, is an enemy. I know we don't always know what to do with death, and so sometimes we try and soften it. I just mean generally as human beings. I don't mean as Christians. I just mean generally. And so we soften it with visions of an afterlife. We soften it with, um, with peaceful and restful imagery. That death is some sort of eternal rest. I really resonate with that poem, which I can't remember. <laughs> but maybe you know it. It's the one that talks about not going peacefully into the night, but raging. Rage against the dying what? Dying of the light, right? That is how, as human beings, we should accurately and appropriately view death as an enemy, as a conqueror that we are enslaved to. That's how the Bible constantly and repeatedly proclaims the horror of human existence. But just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. He says it to repeat it again in verse 22. In fact, look at verse 21. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Here's the point. When Jesus conquered death, he did it as a man. Not merely as a man. The Bible constantly and repeatedly proclaims that God himself, God the Son in Jesus Christ, became a man, was sent by God, incarnated and took on flesh, so that not just could he die, but also so that he could be raised. Okay? The problem with humanity is a human problem. The breakdown in our relationship with God is our fault. The distance that we've created is our distance. It's not that God is running from us, but that we have run from him. It's not that God is lost and must be found, but according to the Bible, we are the ones that are lost. And that's, Jesus came not just to set us on the right path, not just to teach us the way back to God, but literally he became a man to fix the human part of the equation. Not merely just to die the death that we deserve and pay the consequences 
of our sin and separation and rebellion, but also to break the chains of death. Just think of this for a second. When we talk about Jesus at the right hand of the Father, when we talk about him being King of kings and Lord of lords, when it goes on to talk about him with everything in subjection under him, that's all true of a human being, not merely a human being. But Jesus stands in heaven with flesh and blood like we have. He stands with scars that his own creation gave him. And he stands as a human conqueror over death. The significance of this is kind of like, let's think of it in this way. Let's take the idea of running away from home. Okay. If you've run away from home, you have to get back home. That's, that's how this gets fixed. And basically, the way the Bible paints it is not only did we willingly choose to run away, like the story that Jesus tells of the son who says, give me my inheritance, I'm going to go make a living for myself. But as we did that, we also enchained, ensnared ourselves, became lost. There's no getting back from where we are. We have memories of home, but we cannot find our way. There's a song that was written by Joni Mitchell. That's two weeks in a row, by the way. I referenced her last <laughs> week. Um, but it was actually made famous by Crosby, Stills, and Nash. It was, a, it was a hippie anthem. And the chorus says, we are stardust, we are golden. It says something else, and then it finishes, we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. What garden? The Garden of Eden, right? The reference is there was something about human life has attended that is missing. We've got to find our way back. And as surprising as it may sound, coming from a Christian pastor, that is an, a right and proper assessment. It just misses the tremendous difficulty involved in that. Okay. And so what the Bible declares God did about that is he came looking for us. He left home became a man, entered into the place that was not home, if you will, and then, effectively, he brought us home. Okay? Not just pointed the way, not just explained, not just condemned from a distance and said, if they really wanted to be a part of the family, they'd come back. No, he became a man, he died the death that we deserved, and then he came home so that we also might come home with him. He drove the car out into the wilderness he knew exactly where we were. He said, get in and I'll take you home. Okay. But that's not all. Notice as he continues here. He says in verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. And so what he says here first off is that this resurrection that begins in Jesus isn't finished yet. He says these things are going to happen in their own order. First there's the first fruits, then there's the rest of the harvest. First there's the resurrection of Jesus, and then when he comes again, the resurrection of all of us, okay? And so we live in this tension between what God has done and what God will do, between the fact that Jesus has come, died, buried, and resurrected, and the fact that he will return. 
Okay, this is the structure of this. And this is important because there were people in the church in Corinth who were trying to fast forward to the good pit, who were saying, this is the resurrected life. We're already living in the full-blown kingdom of God. Everything Jesus did is consummated so we can live in that way. And so they threw off constraints and they ignored the reality of sin and they pretended this is life as God intended. The story of Jesus Christ is not yet finished. What we've had is, in, in a sense, not just episode one, but a prequel. The real significant reality is when Jesus returns. And when he does, everything kicks into gear. Everything comes to be, like, uh, like the theologians like to call it, is the consummation of all things. It's the end of the story. And so we live in this place. We live in this tension where, the, where uh, death is bleeding but he's not yet dead. Where we still experience death and it's as if the teeth have been taken out of death. The fear of death has been compromised. But the resurrection is still future. The life that Jesus promised is still future. But more than that, it says secondly here that it's not just death, but when he comes, not only will there be resurrection to life, but there will also be conquering. What does he say? He says this. He says... Uh, when then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. See, this is the second thing that's wrong. This is the second why, okay? This world is not as God intended, not just because there is death, but also, as I mentioned earlier, because there is rebellion. And that rebellion is greater than the sum of its parts. What I mean is uh, what the Bible refers to as the world, Okay? The world is this system that we all have a part in, but is greater than all of us just being added together, that is inherently against God, that tries to be our own savior, that enslaves the people around us, that uses people to get what we want. What the Bible is saying here is that when Jesus comes, he won't just defeat death, but poverty. Not just poverty, but injustice, tyranny. That all of the powers, both physical and spiritual, because he refers here to the powers and principalities in other places, that recognizes that there's a spiritual component to this. That there really is an enemy called the devil and that he is actively evolved in human history. All of those things are going to be set right. The significance of this cannot be understated, and it's for a couple of reasons. One, if the world isn't set right, then it just goes sideways again. Right? If you, if you course correct, but your alignment in your car is off, you just have to course correct again. In fact, there's a worse truth. What does the history of revolution teach us? It teaches us that in human capabilities, revolution becomes tyranny. Right? I'm assuming by now you've all read the end of the Hunger Games, and so you know that the oppressed can easily become the oppressors. What Jesus does is different, okay? and we'll come back to this in a second, but God's destiny is not a post-life reality. It's earth as it was intended. When we turn to the book of Revelations, we don't see all those on earth leaving heaven. We see a new heaven and a new earth descending 
from God. We see the recreation of all things. We see a fresh beginning without the flaw, the fatal flaw that we brought into the system with rebellion. In Jesus Christ, slowly but surely, and finally, very quickly and in, in, in crisis sense, God is setting everything right. And everything that is against God, and let me just remind you, anything, including you, that is against God is destroying you. God is going to set right in Jesus Christ. He leaves us with the question, what does the resurrection have to do with that? Why is that a component of that? We'll come back to that. But there's something more I want you to see here. He says that he's going to take down everyone, and then he says in verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Do you see that word must? He says this has to be. This has to happen. He must reign until every power, principality, authority, until every enemy is defeated, until all is conquered. Why does he say must? It's not only because that's the only way human life has significance. The story is a comedy instead of a tragedy. There's a meaning to be held in the story. It's not just that. It's also because this is what the Psalms proclaimed was the destiny of man. If you go back to Psalm 8, there's this psalm that starts with this question, who is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? It asks this question about human destiny about who we are as human beings, and it just recognizes our smallness in the full sense of the universe. Who are, I? Who are we that you would care for us, God? And then it goes on and it talks about the fact that we as human beings were put a little lower than the angels and everything was put under our feet. You see, human destiny was to be as vice regents for God. We were given the earth not just to enjoy it, but to righteously rule it, to care for it and tend for it, to be God's representatives on earth. Read Genesis 1 and 2. And the psalmist is dealing with the tension of that and going, everything's gone wrong. We were supposed to be the kings and we've become the slaves. We were supposed to be the, you know, the benevolent ones and we became the dictators. How did this happen? How did we get here? And the psalmist is wrestling with this. And what Paul does in this passage by quoting this and then as he quotes in verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. He quotes from another psalm, and this one is Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 was considered even by the Jews to be a messianic psalm. They saw that its significance pointed forward to what God would do when he sent their savior. It's the one that Jesus quotes when he's talking with the religious leaders in the last week of his life. And he says, why is it that David refers to the Messiah as his Lord? When he says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I've made your enemies a footstool. The question he says is, if, if David is the father, the grandfather, if the Messiah is the descendant of David, how can he be greater than David? And Jesus knows the answer because he's himself speaking about himself. It's this reality of God become man. That he's both the son of David and the Lord of David. But when he quotes that psalm, which, by the way, is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, Psalm 110. When Paul quotes it here with Psalm 8, he marries these two ideas together, human destiny and what the Messiah came to do. Jesus came to be the king that we could not be. 
That's what Paul says here. So he adds here that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The finality of that will be taken care of. But notice what he says next, again in verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is, he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. That's a wordy and confusing statement, but here's what he says. He says, God has promised to put all things under the feet of Jesus, in subjection to Jesus, to make Jesus ruler of all things. Of course, obviously, that accepts God the Father himself. That's what he's saying here. He continues, and he says, uh, verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. Another wordy building on this, but effectively what he says is, when Jesus has taken every rule and authority, when he is king of kings, then he will align himself again under the Father. Okay. Now that seems super strange. And the reason I say that is because there were even heretics in the church, uh, history of the church who said, right there, evidence that Jesus is just a created being, Evidence that he's merely human, even if he's a super special one, because he's not equal to God, he's under God. That's to miss the point of what's going on here, okay? Not to mention deny the clear statements otherwise. It also relies on a misunderstanding that we generally have as modern human beings, which says that if you subject yourself to someone, if you put yourself under, then, then there's no equality there. That's, uh, that's another story. But here's why this is being said, okay? Because what we're talking about is a conqueror. What we're talking about is a victor. But there's a major difference in every other conquering, in every other revolution, in every other victory. Take Zeus, right? The audience that Paul is writing to, this is, this is 100 years after Athens was at its high mark. But I'm sure they're familiar with the story of Zeus. How does Zeus set things right when his father, Kronos, has set them wrong? He defeats Kronos. In fact, Kronos, if you go back one more generation, just did the same thing to his father. Okay? How, how, are, uh, how are things set right in terms of tyranny through revolution and the overthrowing of the dictator, right? That's to misunderstand the problem that the Bible is talking about here. Paul wants to clarify that this revolution is different, that it's unique. What he's saying here is that unlike every other victory in history, this was a victory through submission. This was a victory through subjection. That what, God, what Jesus is doing is not conquering against a tyrant God, but setting everything right and realigning it under that selfsame God. And as I said, that's really good news because that's where the problem lies. And the problem with, uh, with the oppressed who become oppressors is that some of that, some of that problem lives in us. I know that can be a little bit confusing. I'm going to come back to it. It's where I want to finish, but I want you to notice the final that here. At the very end of verse 28, he says, that God may be all in all. You know what that word that means? It means purpose. Right? We could say it, we could translate it this way, in order that. Here's the goal. When we answer the question, why did Jesus raise for the dead? We can jump, we can fast forward on the tape all the way to this purpose, that God may be all in all. Okay? 
Now, what does that mean? It means a couple of things. First, it recognizes the fact that the most satisfying and meaningful thing in the universe is God himself. And what it says here is that we will get back to a place where everything aligns and recognizes that, and we will not only be satisfied in the God who is satisfying, but all things will be back to the way they should. What this is talking about, that God may be all in all, is that order would return to the universe, that the chaos that's caused by sin and death would be dealt with, that there would be resurrection or a, a restoration um, and, and restructuring This is what it's talking about, that God may be all in all. Another way to read this is, so that everything may be as it should be. So that God, who is the most satisfying and central thing of the universe, would be recognized and truly be as such. That's what it says here. Why did Jesus raise from the dead? to set all things right so that God may be all in all. Not so that God could... Well, let's leave those aside. I want to point, and I want to finish here, to the uniqueness of God's plan. As I pointed to earlier, the essential problem with the human race is summed up in the word rebellion. What's most required of human beings is summed up in the word repentance. And C.S. Lewis, helpfully talking about repentance, says this. He says, first off, repentance is no fun at all. Repentance means to wave the white flag of surrender, to give up going your own way, to stop rebelling. But he also goes on and he says, however, there's a problem with repentance, something that we don't always think of. And this is what he says. He says it takes a good man to repent, but a good man doesn't need to. And a bad man needs to repent, but he doesn't have it in himself to do so. Okay? Simply put, if rebellion is the problem, and if that rebellion goes down to the roots of who we are, and what's needed is surrender, where does that come from? And what Lewis does is he goes on to describe the significance of the gospel in these terms. It's not the only way to do so, but it will be helpful this morning. This is what he says. He says, effectively, God who need not be subject because he is God, who never needs to obey because he is God, became a man and therefore subject and obedient. Surrendered himself to God the Father to always do, as it says in the Gospel of John, the things that please the Father. As it says in the book of Philippians, he became obedient to the Father, even to the point of death, even to death on the cross. And as he did that, as he became subject He also brought us with him. God did the one thing only we could do to set things right that we couldn't do. And he did it by becoming a man, by becoming subject. And so where this ends is with all the kingdoms and powers and authorities being where they're supposed to be in right alignment with God. I just want to stress this. The gospel is victory through submission. It's conquering through surrender. What Jesus has done in the cross, like I said, is something that Jesus didn't need to do. But he did it so that we could. 
He did the part that we couldn't do. He invited us into that. And in setting all things right, I've been trying to think of an image of this all morning. But basically, he realigns us under the Father and brings us back into the place where there is light, brings us back into the place where there is life, where goodness goodness is the description of reality. I know there's a lot of deep thoughts here this morning. But here's the point. God is interested in, committed to, setting things right. Not because he opened Pandora's box and caused the problem. We did that. Not because we're deserving of an adjustment and a fixing. No, we're, we're the problem. We're, we're the rebels. We're the ones who have turned against him. We're the ones who, like Adam, have gone our own way, been our own gods, come up with our own s- systems of salvation and significance, and forgotten the God who is not only God, but is also good. And the way that he did it, the way that he did it, was through tasting death for all men was through defeating death for all men. And when we talk about put your trust in Jesus, when we talk about come to Jesus, that's what we're offering. It's not merely something that makes this life easier to live. It's not merely something that um, deals with the guilt that you find in yourself. It's not merely something that gives you a system to live as a better human being. It is God's key to the universe to setting things right, so that God may be all in all. You may not be able to remember all the way back to our first week in the catechism, um, but it begins much like the Westminster uh, one does by asking, what is the purpose of man? And Westminster answers it this way, to love God and be satisfied in him. The two coincide. They go together. That God may be all in all. The significance of Easter is not yet completed. It's not yet fulfilled. We live in this tension between the fact that Jesus really is alive, and that means in the midst of death and difficulty, destruction and dearth, we really do find life. We really do find growth. We really do find healing. We really do find peace in the chaos. But we also recognize that not all those things have been put right yet. Not all those things are finished As Francis Schaeffer says, because Jesus has come, we should expect expect significant healing. Because he has not come back, we shouldn't expect complete healing. That's the place where we live. We live caught between these two moments that Jesus is alive and death is bleeding, but eventually death will be dead. That Jesus is alive and that put all of the powers and principalities on notice. But eventually they will be fully overturned. That Jesus is alive means that we can fully and completely experience a restored relationship with God. But it's going to be hindered by sin, by distraction, by destruction, by the fact that we live in a broken world. But one day, every barrier to knowing God and being known by God will, will come to an end. Why? Because of the resurrection. Let's pray.
Father, we need a deeper understanding of your plan. We need to see the big picture of what you're doing. That the resurrection wasn't just evidence that you are. The resurrection wasn't just proof that Jesus' teaching is true. That it really is the beginning of the fixing of all things. I pray, Lord, that we would long for that reality. I pray that we would press into the things that are already true as you are already putting things under the feet of Jesus, as all things are becoming subject to him, that we would live in light of those things, that we would live in a sense like a uh, a colony of heaven on earth, that we would reflect what you're doing, that people would be able to see that the sun is rising because they can see it shining on our faces. But we also anticipate and expect and long for the sun to actually rise, for a new day to dawn. We say with the early church, come Lord Jesus. And I pray that the places where we're frustrated right now with our bondage to our own sin, with the horror and the havoc being wreaked by a fallen world around us, the death and the destruction and the breaking down that we experience, by the injustice that we see, not only in our society, but we find in ourselves. I pray, Lord, that we would hold those frustrations as being true and real and something to rage against, not something to be satisfied with, but we would recognize that we know the end of the story and that we participate in these things because it's in the direction of what you ultimately will do. And just as you came and you fixed the beginning with your becoming a man, your death and resurrection, so also will you come again to finish what you started. I pray, Lord, as we go about our celebration today with one another, with our families, with our friends, even in quiet moments by ourselves, I pray that we press into the significance of this act as being the most important happening in human history as defining the fact that the story God is telling is not really about us, even though we are the greatest beneficiaries of this story. That you are setting everything right with yourself at the center of the universe and that we can rest and rejoice and live in that reality. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna take some time, we're going to respond.